Good morning. Welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Yesterday we had the uh, memorial service for my dad, and I want to thank everybody who helped prepare things and get everything ready, and I really do appreciate that, and I know he would have loved to have been here. A couple of announcements uh, for everybody to remember. Next Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m., so that gives you time to go home, get out of your nice clothes, take a quick nap, put them back on, come back. There'll be a memorial service for Tom Flint, who went to be with the Lord uh, last week. That will be here at 5 p.m., and there will be a reception following. Also a reminder for the Samaritan's Purse, that's uh, that's the Franklin Graham Ministry, the Samaritan's Purse uh, Christmas Shoebox uh, Drive, and that information is on the table back in the Fellowship Hall. And Alan was telling me a minute ago that... Uh, one of the first responders, first groups to get into the areas hit so hard by uh, Hurricane Sandy was the uh, was the Samaritan's Purse Ministry, and they took lots of uh, food and other necessities in there. So they really do uh, a very efficient and excellent uh, excellent work. Also, a reminder: on Sunday, December the ninth, we will have a uh, our ch- annual church Christmas meal following the morning worship service. And then next week on Saturday, uh, November the 10th, two things are happening. Number one, I will be speaking at the Center for Terrorism Law in San Antonio, which is part of the St. Mary's University Law School on the topic of Christianity and Islam, which is a religion of peace. Now, some of you think that's just going to be a short answer, but it could be, but it won't. Uh, and then also that same day, Camp Penile will be having their annual uh, garage sale. The auxiliary will be having their annual garage sale, and that is going to be at uh, Pine Valley Bible Church, which is over near uh, the old uh, Gulfgate Mall, that area. And if you have anything to donate, please uh, bring it to church. You can contact Holly Benson. Holly's on the board for Camp Penile, and uh, by uh, Wednesday of this week, or what I'm trying to read this, bring to church and Holly Benson will pick up on Wednesday of this week at 10 a.m. So there. Also be thinking of the fact that in the spring, Camp Arete will be having a uh, uh, garage sale as well. Before we begin our service, we recognize the importance as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, of coming together on Sunday morning, once a week to worship the Lord. This time for corporate worship. Individual worship takes place in our lives every day, but we worship as a body of believers each week as we come together to focus on God and His grace, all that He has provided for us, all that He has supplied us, uh, who He is, and this is our time to reflect upon and learn about God and His His grace, His provision of salvation, and to praise him through what we sing, what we learn. Scripture says that we are to worship by means of spirit, by means of the spirit, and by means of truth. That means that we are to be in fellowship. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all sin at the cross. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, at that instant, that sin penalty is applied to them they have eternal life, but sin still affects every single one of us. When we sin, our fellowship with God is broken, 
And Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So simply in silent prayer, when we admit, acknowledge our sin to God the Father, then at that instant we are cleansed, forgiven of all sin, restored to fellowship for our ongoing growth and momentum in the spiritual life. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to worship the Lord together this morning, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you are the creator of the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. You are the one who created us as human beings in your image and likeness for the purpose to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. We are to bring everything in creation under uh, your control. Yet, Father, due to sin, that image is marred. Due to sin, the ability to fulfill the mission is compromised. And yet, our ability to recover that begins when we face the reality of our own sin. We come to the cross and we trust in Jesus Christ and his payment for our sin. And by faith alone and Christ alone, we have eternal life. Father, we come as a body of believers this morning to focus upon you, to be reminded of who you are, to be reminded of your grace in our lives, and to have our attention focused upon things that have eternal value and that we might not be distracted by the things that really have no lasting significance and are of only temporal value. Father, during this time as we focus upon you, we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will make the things clear that we study and learn today, that it may be applied in our thinking and in our lives. And we pray that throughout this service you will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together for our opening hymn, number 404, The Solid Rock. Please stand, hymn number 404. This morning is in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse 22 and read down through uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. This is the parallel passage to the one we're studying in Colossians dealing with the responsibilities of wives and husbands and parents and children within the home. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Let us stand for our second hymn. It's hymn number three, Praise the Lord, the King of Glory. Hymn number three, please stand. Scripture teaches that giving is very much a part of worship. Giving is an opportunity for us to respond to the grace of God in our lives. Giving in Scripture is not something that we do in order to get something in return from God, but giving is done because God has already given us so much in salvation. Scripture says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Our giving is motivated by our appreciation for God's goodness and his grace in our lives and our desire to support the local church and the ministry of God's word both here and abroad through the missionaries that we support. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we are grateful for all that you have given us and supplied to us. You have given this to us freely, not based on conditions, not based on who and what we are, but on who you are and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And Father, in response to your grace in our lives and our understanding of all that you have done for us, we give these gifts to honor you, to glorify you, that they might be used for the support of the teaching of your word, both here and abroad. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to, that we have your word which enlightens us, informs us, instructs us, guides us, and it is in the light of the truth of your word that we are able to clearly see how we should live. Father, we are reminded that we are creatures and that as creatures who have come under the judgment of sin, we are fallen and therefore it is our, it is our basic orientation due to the indwelling presence of sin to be rebellious. Nevertheless, it is through your grace and it is through your word that we are enabled to uh, obey you, to submit to you, to recognize that you are our creator and that you have provided our perfect redemption. And so, Father, now as we study your word, we recognize that it is in your word that we learn how we are to think, how we are to live, that we might overcome the uh, drives of our sin nature and that we might learn to focus upon uh, why you have created us the way you have and how we are to live in light of our purpose and destiny. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in the last part of Colossians, specifically the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, dealing with the application of what Paul has instructed the believers in the church of Colossae in the rest of the letter. And at the end, he brings it down to application within the structure of the family. And in Colossians chapter 3, 3 verses 18 and 21 uh, talks about the role and responsibility of wives, husbands, children, parents, and then on to slaves because they were part of the household at that time and masters. This is expanded actually in Ephesians 5, uh, the last part of Ephesians 5 from 519 down through 33 and the first part of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So we will be looking at that passage this morning as an expansion of the uh, four verses that we have here in Colossians three eighteen through 21, which just state the basic uh, fundamental command. Now, we have spent the last several weeks talking about God's establishment and the institution of marriage and what the Scripture teaches about the impact of sin on the original design of marriage and the original purpose for man and woman both created equally in the image and likeness of God and yet given specific distinct uh, responsibilities and obligations within the home. We have seen that what the Scripture teaches about the roles and responsibilities of the wife are not exactly what is often caricatured about what Christianity teaches about the role of women and the role of wives within, the, uh, within marriage and within the church. And also now we take the wives off the hot seat and we focus on the men. 
and what the Scripture teaches about the roles and responsibilities of husbands is uh, equally significant and I think even more demanding and restrictive than uh, what might be thought in terms of the roles of wives and, and mothers. The passage that we're focusing on will take us a couple of weeks to work through this is Ephesians 5, uh, 25 to 33. I've already read that, read that in the in our scripture reading this morning. So I just want to give us a little bit of a flyover uh, orientation to this particular uh, passage from verse 25 down through verse 33. We see in terms of the structure that the focus of this section is on the husband and his responsibility to love his wife. And it is significant because Unlike the uh, Colossians passage, which talks about husbands loving your wives and not making them bitter, we go into a pattern here for what the model is for husbands in terms of their love for their wives. We see in two places that there is a comparative. The command is to husbands to love your wives but you are to do it in response to a particular pattern, a particular model, and that is the pattern of how Jesus Christ loves the church. And that is a standard that is an absolute standard that is one that in and of itself, as fallen human beings, we cannot possibly achieve apart from the aid and the strength of the Holy Spirit both in Ephesians 5.25 and in 5.28, we see this comparative statement that we are to love as Christ also loved the church in verse 25. And then in verse 28, Paul again says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So there's two comparatives there. In the first part, the first three verses, which will be our focus this morning, there are two uh, purpose or result clauses, the per- but these describe Christ's love for the church. First purpose was that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that is, uh, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and set for the long-term purpose that he might present her, that is, the church, the body of all uh, believers, in Christ, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. So all of this in these first three verses is simply designed to help us understand, men, what the pattern in Scripture is for what it means when we say to our wives, I love you, that that's not just a something we say, it's not just something we feel, but it is something that is to be embodied in us as a reflection of our own orientation to the Lord Jesus Christ and to salvation. So just as with the wives, the pattern for our roles in marriage is set not by culture, it's set not by tradition, it's not set by uh, any ideas of how society ought to be structured, it's set by the relationship of Jesus Christ to the Father, to Jesus Christ, to the body of the, the church. And so this then becomes our standard. It therefore has an eternal standard, an eternal 
reference point, not a temporal reference point. We're not to love our wives as they did in Rome or in Greece or in Israel or in China or anywhere else. It is patterned by that eternal love of Jesus Christ for the church. We see that this is a command that runs through this section. It begins the section, husbands, love your wives, and then it's repeated after the first illustration in verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives. And then at the end, there is a repetition for the third time. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. First, we love as Christ loved the church, then as our own bodies, and then last, uh, as as ourselves. So that is the pattern laid out as we go through this uh, passage. Then we see two comparatives here, these brown circles here. They're explanations of, in verses 29 and 30, explanations of verse 20, uh, 28. We have basically four uh, opening sentences, verses 25 to 27 are one sentence in the original, and then verse 28 is a separate thought, 29 is a separate thought, 30 is a separate thought, and 31 is a quote from the Old Testament at the conclusion of the creation narrative in chapter 2, talking about as illustrating the unity between husband and wife in the marriage. And then there's the concluding injunction in verses 32 and 33. That just gives you an idea, an overview of the focal point here. I always break these down into the basic thought components. A sentence is the basic unit of thought. And so we try to work our way through Scripture in terms of, so that we can understand the thought of the uh, original author. Verses 25 to 27 gives us the foundation, men, for how we are to love our wives and why. The command is to love your wife, your own wife, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, in this passage, we have one of two words that's used in Greek for love. There are actually uh, four different words that are translated love in English. Greek had a little more precise breakdown on the concept of love. And this is the verb agapao, which is the broadest kind of love, and it emphasizes more of a mental attitude than it does an emotional feeling. The other primary word used in the New Testament for love is phileo. And a phileo is more of an intense, personal, intimate love. But agapao is a broader concept, and it also relates to the kind of love that God has for the entire human race. A verse we'll look at in a minute is John 3.16, which gives us the pattern for understanding and defining love in the New Testament, and that is for God loved the world in this way, he sent his unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is the love of God for the world composed of rebellious, uninterested, uncaring, antagonistic, uh, 
human beings that God loves, not on the basis of who they are, not on the basis of what they've done, not on the basis of even their potential, but because he created them in his own image and likeness. And because of his character, his integrity, he chooses to love the human race. It is not based on the fact that he finds them likable. It's not based on the fact that he uh, finds them to be such uh, wonderful companions and lovely scintillating personalities and conversationalists, but it is because of who he is in terms of his character. And that is the foundation for understanding what real love is. Love is not based on an emotion. All emotions are fleeting. Uh, They come, they go. Sometimes uh, men, we feel very uh, warm. We feel very emotional, sentimental uh, about our wives. And same thing is true for our wives toward us. And at other times, they're not so lovely. Now, I know that doesn't apply to any wives here in this congregation, but it applies to some somewhere. And sometimes we might not be all that lovely. We might not be all that wonderful to be with, yet they, they love us not on the basis of who we are, what we do, but it should be grounded in their own character and in their own uh, understanding of the love of God. So love, for it to have any real meaning or value or significance, can't be grounded in our uh, transitory personalities that are always in flux over one thing or another. It's got to be grounded in something that has more substantive significance, more of an eternal value, an eternal relationship. This is what's emphasized in this verb, agapao, a love that is... Uh, that is based on character, not on emotion. I'm not saying that emotion's wrong, but I'm saying that when emotion isn't there, what has to be there is this mental attitude, sense of loyalty, dedication, and uh, focus upon the object of love. Now, we'll talk about definition of love uh, in just a minute. We're to love our wives. This is expressed in the Greek as a present imperative, which means this is to be something that uh, continuously characterizes our relationship to our wife. It's not something that uh, is being emphasized here in terms of a priority, but as a standard operating procedure for every husband. The comparison is to the love that Christ has for the church. Again, it's the same verb. It's stated as an aorist indicative, which is just a historical reality, that that is the pattern, the model, which is emphasized by that comparative just as. That's our pattern. That is uh, the model that has been given to us. Now, when we talk about love, and we'll get into it a little more in terms of what the Scripture says in in a minute, But we have to recognize that this is one of the most misunderstood, most distorted, most confused concepts uh, that we find throughout all of human history. You have all kinds of definitions of love out there. You look up love in a dictionary, look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, look it up in Webster's Dictionary, and they define love as emotion. But if love is simply emotion, then we've got a problem. And when you look at the Bible, love is never defined 
as an emotion. There is a recognition of love, of a type of love that is emotional. But the love that is given and described in Scripture is not something that is emotional, something that is sentimental. It is not something that is uh, transitory. So we have a problem with understanding just what it means to love someone and defining it. In fact, having uh, worked on glossaries in the past, worked on theological dictionaries in the past, probably the, the most difficult word to define is the word love. Because even when you look at dictionaries, they tend to describe love rather than define love. And there's a difference between those two concepts. So the best definition I've been able to come up with for love is that love is the mental attitude that seeks the absolute best for the object of love. Seeks the absolute best for the object of love. Now, the problem with that is that as soon as you use the word best, you ha- that relates to some kind of value. Well, whose value are you using? If I look at someone and I say, I love you, and I want the absolute best for you in terms of what I think, in my opinions, then I've got a problem because I've got a very temporal, uh, self-centered concept of what is best for you. That concept of what is best is what is best as God defines it in Scripture. When we go to 1 Corinthians 13, as we did several weeks ago, and we worked our way through that passage, I pointed this out, that even in the Scripture, we have descriptions of love rather than definitions of love. So we have these various patterns uh, that are given to us, and throughout all of history since the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden through the Old Testament period in terms of God's work with Israel, and then in the New Testament period, God sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, we continuously have pictures and descriptions of love. In the Old Testament in Hebrew, the basic word for love is ahav, which has a broad range of meanings, not unlike the English word for love, but a word that is often used as a synonymous parallel for ahav is a word that is normally translated in English Bibles as loving kindness or faithfulness, uh, God's unchanging love, his faithful, loyal love, and that is the word hesed, and that is the idea there. It emphasizes his loyalty to the, the object of his love expressed, especially under, in the period of Israel, his object for love are the Israelites, the nation Israel, based on the covenant that God made with him, with them. And it is his loyalty to the covenant that in spite of Israel's disobedience, in, in spite of their idolatry, in spite of their unfaithfulness, in spite of the periods of dark uh, spirituality where they completely rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God affirmed that he would always be loyal and faithful to them because it's based on who he is and his character and not based on who they are and, and their character. So the main idea that comes across of uh, God's love in the Old Testament is that God is loyal and faithful to his covenant with Israel. 
Now, when we take that, man, and we transfer that over to our love for our wives, sometimes it's not very romantic to think that what love basically is is loyalty to a contract. But that's, in essence, what it is. We have a legal covenant with our wives, the marriage ceremony where we make certain promises Uh, both husbands and wives, to one another. That is the marriage covenant. And love is loyalty, faithfulness to that marriage covenant at its very foundation. That's the emphasis. Now, there's more to love than that, but that is part of the foundation, that no matter what happens, richer, poorer, in adversity, in prosperity, in sickness, in health, Whatever happens, we love one another. There is a loyalty to that covenant that is not going to be disrupted by various circumstances. And that is the pattern of God's love for us. It's not based on, as I said, who we are, because one day we're one way, another day we're another way. But God is immutable. Scripture says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. The Old Testament emphasizes God never changes. So we can always count on him to be the same way all the time. So husbands are to have this kind of love for their wives. And the pattern then is in the last part of the verse that just as Christ loved the church and what? He gave himself for her. So love isn't just a mental attitude. It, it extends itself in terms of its focus and ministry and service to the object of love. So we are to love and give ourselves for our wives. This is emphasized couple of passages here as we look at two words before I go on. Paradidomi, which is the word that means to deliver up or give up or to hand over, and it emphasizes that the person doing it is consciously, intentionally, purposefully giving over something. It's not just the word didomi, which means to give, but it is. it emphasizes that conscience, uh, resolute decision to do something on behalf of someone else for their best interest. The preposition that's usually translated for in English is a preposition huper, which always emphasizes substitution. Somebody does something for someone else. This is where we get the uh, concept uh, describing Christ's work on the cross of substitutionary atonements, a technical theological terminology, meaning that Jesus Christ died in our place. This has been depicted throughout the Old Testament period in terms of animal sacrifices that in the tabernacle and temple, the lamb that had been tested, evaluated, observed, and was without spot or blemish would be brought into the temple. And then the priest would put his hand and the hand of the, as if the priest was reciting the sins of Israel, he would put his hand upon the top of the lamb. Uh, Otherwise, it was the person who brought the lamb in would put his hand on top of the lamb, indicating that the lamb was being identified with the sins of the worshiper, and the worshiper would recite his sins, and they are being transferred to the lamb so that the lamb then is sacrificed and dies 
in place of the worshiper. At, all through the Old Testament, you have that picture of substitutionary death. This is why John the Baptist says when Jesus first comes down to the Jordan River, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his mission. That was his purpose. So we have this statement here summarizes substitutionary atonement that Christ gave himself. He died in place of the church. It's reiterated in other passages, such as Ephesians 5.2, earlier in this chapter, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, given himself as a substitute for us, this constant connection between love and substitutionary atonement. Christ loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Romans 8.32 uses the same word, paradidomi, to give, intentionally give, that he, that is God the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's that same word, gave him intentionally, uh, delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? See, salvation is free. It's free to you. It's free to me. It's not ultimately free because someone had to pay the price. Jesus Christ paid the price on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 states, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, one died as a substitute for others, one died for all, then all died. So again, it emphasizes substitution. And verse 15, and he died for all, that he died as a substitute for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. So in marriage, husbands, you're not there for yourself. That's a radical idea that Paul develops in this chapter. It's not for us. We're not in the marriage for what we get out of it. Our wives are not to serve us. They are not a second-class citizen. That's a new idea in Greco-Roman culture. It is a radical shift uh, in thinking that the wife is part of that team in the marriage and the husband is to love her like his own body, love her like himself, not putting her in a position of inferiority or subordination. So th- that's the foundation that we, uh, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to live for him, whether husband, wife, male or female, we live for him, not for ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. That's that emphasis on on substitutionary atonement again. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, when Paul wrote this, it was about 61, 62 A.D. What did they have for Scripture? wasn't the New Testament. 
Only a few books of the New Testament had been written by that time, maybe maybe half, but some were being written right at that time. For example, 1 Corinthians is is when he is writing this. He still has yet to write 2 Corinthians and the pastoral epistles. Peter's epistles are somewhat later. Uh, John's epistles are later. Revelation is later. So when he talks about Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, he's referring to the... 39 books of the Old Testament, what was the Hebrew Scriptures, and the predictions that were made throughout the uh, 4,000-plus years of the Old Testament period that God would send a Savior who would die. There were pictures in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, pictures through the various uh, offerings in the Levitical offerings under the Mosaic Law, uh, pictures in terms of various patterns in uh, the behavior of, of different individuals. For example, in the book of Ruth, the focus is on Ruth as a widow and the, and the gracious uh, response of, of, of uh, Boaz, who is coming as her kinsman redeemer, her goel, which was an Old Testament, which is a Hebrew word for redeemer and that he could come as her, uh, as a kinsman to her deceased husband, and he could voluntarily take up that uh, husband responsibility and marry Ruth. So Ruth is a picture of God's grace and God's blessing and of, of uh, redemption there. So uh, we have all these different patterns, plus specific prophecies and specific promises given in the Old Testament over a period of several thousand years that pinpoint uh, this coming of this promised redeemer, that he would be a, a, a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Judah, uh, the great-grandson of Abraham. He would come from the tribe of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Micah 5.2, that he would be a descendant in the royal line of David. That's why you have all those genealogies people don't like to read in the Old Testament, is they're tracing this lineage to demonstrate that Jesus Christ has the genealogical credentials to uh, fulfill these Old Testament uh, predictions. So there are also predictions, for example, in Psalm 22, written by David approximately 1,000 B.C. before crucifixion ever came into uh, historical use, and yet he predicts within that psalm that the uh, Messiah would die according to crucifixion. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 depicts the coming of the Messiah as one who would be pierced for our transgressions, very clearly stated that he would he would die in our place uh, upon the cross. And so all through the Old Testament, there are these predictions. So this is why Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's fulfilling these uh, thousands of years of prophecy, hundreds of prophecies related to the uh, work of the Messiah upon the cross. So when Paul writes to husbands, he says that husbands are to... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself. He died on the cross. He went through unimaginable agony and pain and suffering 
not just the physical suffering, the beatings and the whippings and the scourgings, but he also went through the spiritual suffering during those three hours on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when God the Father imputed to him the sins of the whole world so that everybody's sins are paid for by Christ on the cross. And all sin separates us from God. This is why Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what your sin is or what my sin is. Any sin, whether we think of it as a small sin or a big sin, all sin separates us from God, and that problem has to be solved, and that is solved by Christ on the cross. He pays the penalty for all sin. So that's not the issue anymore. Sadly, there are too many uh, Christians down through history who have tried to make sin the issue. And you see this caricatured in a number of different uh, you know, films and TV shows where they're, and unfortunately it is very close to reality in some cases, where these evangelists uh, make issues out of everybody's sin. But the Scripture doesn't do that. The New Testament doesn't do that. It identifies what sin is because we have to understand that we are fallen, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and there's not anything we can do to gain, to gain God's uh, pleasure. Uh, we've got a deficit, and we can't supply the uh, credit to overcome the deficit. It has to be supplied by somebody else. That's the work of, of, of Jesus Christ. And so the focus of Scripture isn't on you feeling sorry for all of your sins and weeping and wailing and telling God, oh, I'll never do that again. God's omniscient. He knows that you and I are going to do it thousands of more times. The issue is that Christ paid the penalty, something we can't do. He paid the penalty, and the only issue is faith in Christ. It's not what you did or what I did. It's what Christ did. He paid the penalty. And it's whether or not we're going to accept that as a free gift. So Christ went through all of that because he loved us, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. And that is the pattern for husbands. Now, Christ does this for a purpose. The first purpose is stated here to sanctify the church. Now, that's one of those uh, older English words and theological terms that uh, confuse people. It simply means to set apart. It is sometimes translated holy, sometimes it's translated consecrate, but it has the basic idea of just setting something apart for the service of God. It does, holiness doesn't make you morally pure. Just think about it in the Old Testament. You had uh, the instruments of the temple are sanctified. Now, uh, a bowl, a knife, a table, an altar can't be holy or unholy. It just I mean, it can't be morally pure or morally impure because it's impersonal. But it can be set apart to the service of God or not. And that's the idea in the word hagiadzo or kadosh in the Old Testament, meaning to sanctify. And even a form of that word was used to, def- to describe the uh, prostitutes in the fertility cults of Baalism and uh, the Ashtoreth. So there, of course, a male and female prostitutes were not morally pure, but they were set apart to the service of their God. That's the idea. So Christ died that we might be set apart to God and to cleanse us. That is, he is the one who cleanses us from sin. We don't cleanse ourselves from sin. We can't do that. 
Christ did it on the cross when he paid the penalty during those three hours when he paid the penalty for, uh, for sin, <clears throat> that he might sanctify and cleanse her, that is the church, by the washing of water by the word. Now, the Greek uses a little bit different uh, term here for word than the one we normally think of, which is logos. Here it uses the word rhema, which refers to the spoken word. Logos can refer to the written word or a number of other meanings, but rhema has the idea of the spoken word or the message. This is the message of the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and by simply believing in him, we can have eternal life. See, that's good news. It's not so good news if the scripture says, look, you're a sinner, and you have to do these 20 things. You have to repent. You have to change your life. You have to do all of these things in order to uh, get saved. That's not good news. That's hard. Scripture says, here's the deal. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. You can accept it or you reject it. doesn't matter what you've done. He died for all sins, for all humanity. But the issue is you have to decide to accept it or reject it. It's called grace. It is a free gift. It's not dependent upon who we are. The pattern is John 3.16, for God... And it's usually translated so loved, but the Greek term here means God loved in this way. Here's the picture of how God loves. He gave his only begotten son, his unique son. He's unique because he is the God-man. He is born of a virgin. He is uh, true 100% humanity, but also true 100% deity. He's given that whoever believes, that's the only condition. Whoever believes, it doesn't say whoever believes and goes to church, whoever believes and reforms their life, whoever believes and, and uh, you know, commits themselves to missionary duty, whatever it is, it just says whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's grace. It's a free gift. The next verse makes it even more clear. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. See, too often you find Christians who are too busy condemning everybody rather than expressing the love of God and the grace of the gospel. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the purpose of sending Jesus Christ, not to get on everybody's case because you're a lousy sinner, but to recognize that because you're a sinner, you need somebody else to do the work for you, and Christ did it. So the result is he who believes in him is not condemned. It doesn't say he who believes in him changes their life, he who believes in him and doesn't do these ten things. It just says he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned already? Because they're, we're all born in a state of spiritual death. We're born in a state, the Scripture says, of condemnation. We need to be have that problem solved, and that's solved by Christ on the cross. So he who does not believe is condemned already. We're born condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the solution is to simply believe in him. Now, love is further expanded on in the New Testament by Jesus. The night before he goes to the cross, he gave his disciples a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, that um, as I have loved you. So the command to love other believers on the pattern of Jesus Christ isn't something just restricted to husbands, wives, just, just to make sure you didn't think you got off scot-free on this. 
If you're a Christian, you're to love one another in the same way that Christ loved you. So we're all responsible for that. But Paul's emphasizing to husbands that that's their responsibility because they have a tendency to forget that. Uh, so we are to love one another as Christ loved us. And then in John thirteen thirty five, he says, By this all will know that you are my disciples. Now, a disciple isn't a Christian. A disciple is a Christian who is serious about studying what Jesus taught and making it part of their life. So how do you know somebody's trying to grow mature as a believer? Because they exhibit the kind of love that Christ has for others in their life. Now, in Galatians, as we kind of wrap things up, Galatians ends with a focus on love. In verse 13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh or for the sin nature to carry out your own desires. But through love, we are to serve one another. That is what should characterize a marriage where the husband and the wife are focusing on serving God by serving one another. Notice I didn't say you're there to serve one another. You're there to serve God, and you do that by serving one another as together you focus on the biblical pattern and purpose for marriage. Paul goes on then to quote from Leviticus 19.18 in verse 14 that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he's gets down to verse 19 after talking about the conflict between the sin nature called the flesh and the Holy Spirit. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, the works of sin. Now, there are a few places where Scripture lists different sins. They're not the same. They're not, your list of the nine worst sins may be different. These are all, all different. It's not a focus on the fact that there are certain sins that are uh, inherently worse than other sins. You know, there's always some people who say, well, if you, do, if you commit adultery or if you're a pederast or if you're, you commit genocide, you, you know, there's some sins that they think have some separate uh, category of sinfulness and Jesus didn't pay for that. But Scripture says Jesus paid for all sin. God's omniscient. He knows every sin that will ever be committed in human history. He didn't forget one. He didn't forget yours. He put them all on Jesus. Now, these are emphasized not because of that they're worse sins, and if you commit them, you weren't saved or you lose your salvation or something like that, but these in Galatians are listed because these are sins that particularly mitigate against love. Notice they are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Sexual immorality within marriage precludes love. You can't love one another if you are involved in covenant unfaithfulness in marriage through adultery and other sexual sin. Then the next category deals with uh, infidelity towards God. Uh, idolatry and sorcery here is the uh, Greek word pharmakeia. Drugs were used in a lot of the mystery religions to give sort of a heightened sense of, uh, of uh, God. And so... Uh, that's how that was used. And then various self-centered emotional sins are listed, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Now, that's a pretty extensive group of sin. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand or have any self-confession here, but I would suggest that most of us are guilty of at least one or two of these most of the time, most weeks. 
And if these are sins that prevent us from getting saved, then we're, none of us are going to get saved. That's not, this isn't talking about that. People focus on the last statement in verse 21 that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God because they think inheriting the kingdom of God means getting eternal life or getting saved. But inheriting the kingdom of God, as we've studied before, is a term related to the rewards that are given to spiritually mature believers at the judgment seat of Christ in eternity. Trusting in Christ gets us into gets us eternal life and gets us into heaven. But those who are especially obedient and grow to maturity are going to give get various rewards. Scripture teaches about crowns and other categories of rewards classified as gold, silver, and precious stones in First Corinthians chapter three. That has to do with inheritance. That's not talking about salvation because salvation is free. It's not based on cleaning up your life because you can work from now till the day you die and you can't clean it up enough. Neither can I. The, the focus on this whole passage is on love. Verse 22 contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the sin nature. And the first fruit is love because that's what he's talking about in context. Remember, he said that we're to, through love serve one another. We're to love <coughs> love. Uh, each uh, love our neighbor as ourselves. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, and other characteristics that relate to that are joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, just to wrap up, we understand that the pattern for love is God's gift of Jesus Christ and salvation. Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, not when you reformed your life, not when you became better than you were, not because you joined a church or went through some sort of religious experience, but while you were a sinner, while you were obnoxious to God, while you were in rebellion against God, while you were doing everything God didn't want you to do, Christ died for you. Now plug that into a marriage. Marriage, you have a husband who's supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That means it's not dependent upon her love for you, her attractiveness to you, her response to you, it is based on something more <clears throat> more eternal that is the character of God for it to have real value. Our love for one another, it can't be based on our character. It's too ephemeral. It has to be based upon the eternal, unchanging character of God. Ephesians 2.89 says that it is by grace that we're saved. That's what we have to understand, men. We have to treat our wives in love and in grace. Grace means it's a free gift. We're doing it. We're loving you, not because we expect anything in return. We're loving you because it's the right thing to do, because that's what God commanded us to do, and because that is should be the foundation for our relationships to anyone, but especially our wives. Scripture says that we're saved by grace. That means it's not by works. It's not by something we do. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not through faith in ritual, not through faith in morality, not through faith and reformation, but faith alone. We're saved by through faith and that not of yourselves. See, that refers back to this whole phrase of this salvation by grace through faith. It's a that that is a neuter noun 
pronoun that does not refer to either grace, saved, or faith because those are all feminine nouns. So it, as a neuter, it refers to that whole phrase, that grace, that salvation by grace through faith is not something generated by our own efforts. It is a gift of God. It's the gift. It's a free gift. It's not given with strings attached. And it's, again, Paul says, if you didn't get the point, that it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's 100% based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. That's the pattern for our love for our wives, men. It is grace. It's based on the character, the unchanging character of God, and it's based on understanding the gospel, which is that Christ died for you and you can have eternal life if you simply trust or accept Jesus Christ as your Savior with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have this by grace through faith salvation, that our salvation is by faith alone. We don't add anything to it. It is in Christ alone. He alone paid for our sins. He alone provided the pathway to salvation, that there is nothing whatsoever that we can do to make ourselves more savable, And there's nothing we fail to do that can cause a loss of our salvation because it's never based on who we are or what we do. It's based on who he is and what he did on the cross. And to understand that as men, to make that the foundation for our love for our wives, it's not just sort of a passive thing, just having a right kind of mental attitude, but it is one that gives and one that focuses on what is best for our wives. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that, to apply it in our marriages and in our lives. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He died on the cross for each human being. He paid the penalty for the sins of every human being. He didn't forget any. And because that's been paid, sin's not the issue. The issue is faith in Jesus Christ, whether or not we have accepted the free gift that God has given us. Father, we pray that you would make these issues very clear to each one of us, that we might come to be especially better husbands, better Christians, better believers, and that we might come to a greater understanding of your grace in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 66, To God Be the Glory. To God Be the Glory was written by William Howard Doan, who, uh, as many of you know, was the uh, music minister at Preston City Bible Church, where I pastored in Connecticut, grew up across the street from there, and this was one of many hymns that he wrote. Please stand for our closing hymn number 66, and then I'm going to ask Doug Karn to please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your incredible grace blessings. We thank you for the provision of your word, which gives us the knowledge and the confidence to live our life today in the light of eternity. Father, we pray that you will challenge us with the things we've heard today. We pray that you will give us uh, safety as we return to our homes and our travels throughout the week. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.